listening to the White Oak Houston podcast, the official podcast of White Oak Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. White Oak exists to help people come alive to the wonder of the gospel and fully follow Jesus. For more information, please visit us online at whiteoakchurch.net. us this morning. I just want to introduce myself. Uh, my name is James Yandel. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at this church, and I'm so glad that you are here. I'm glad that you have uh, decided to join in worship with us, and of course to our faith family. I'm excited to preach the word to you this morning as we, as we end our Send Me series. But as we start this morning, I have a question for you. Have you ever felt like you've been singled out in your lifetime? Right, sometimes we, we are singled out for things that are good, right? We get recognition at work. We do a good thing at work. Our boss singles us out. Our coworker singles us out, and, and it's good, right? Or, or maybe in life, we have an achievement that we do, and the people around us recognize that achievement, and they say, wow, man, that's a, that's a good job. You're unique in that way. Sometimes we're just singled out because we do have a unique personality, our, our unique look to us. I remember a few years ago, I spent a semester abroad in China doing some missions work, and And uh, one of the things you never get used to when you're over there, especially when you're in smaller villages, is that people will run up to you and be like, wow, are you a movie star, right? You're an American. Are you a movie star? And they go up to you and they want to take pictures with you. And that never honestly gets old, right? Now, what does get old, sometimes they'll be like, why is your nose like so big, you know? And they'll ask questions like that. But it's mostly, are you a movie star? So sometimes we get pointed out for things uh, that are good and that we enjoy. But sometimes we get singled out for things that we we don't enjoy, right? I remember when I was, uh, in, I think it was sixth grade, going into seventh grade, I had glasses. And that was before, like, glasses were cool and hipster. Now, like, you get glasses to look cool. But back in the day, I felt like it wasn't like that. And I remember it was about sixth or seventh grade, and I had just gotten these glasses. I'm a little self-conscious. And I don't, to this day, I honestly don't know why I was doing it. But we had free time in class, and I was reading the dictionary. I, I don't know why. I just, it was there, we, I was just looking at it, and there was this guy in the class who sort of looked over at me, and he goes, hey man, are you reading the dictionary over there? And I was like, yeah, you know, just killing some time, and then he goes, hey guys, look, this dude's reading the dictionary over here, what a loser, and that, that was like my uh, seventh grade uh, drama class for pretty much the whole year, was being singled out for that, right? But sometimes we get singled out for things that we don't enjoy, whether it's the way that you look, whether it's the color of your skin, whether it's how you behave or how you act, sometimes we get singled out for things that we don't want to get singled out for, right? I'm thinking of the teenager who dresses a certain way so that he can fit in with his friends, or maybe more so for us adults, maybe we're in a conversation with other people, maybe our coworkers, and they come to a consensus on a topic that you kind of disagree with, but you don't really want to jump in because you don't want to be the odd man out, right? We, we all have these things that we, we want to fit in. It's a part of human nature. And if that's you, don't worry, it plagues all of us. So I wanted to to demonstrate this morning via a clip um, of how it's not just unique to you, but that we all want to fit in. So I'm going to show this clip, and then we'll talk about it. (laughs) All right, give that a round of applause. Candid Camera, they had good TV back in the days. I I never seen this show before, but this is from an old show, Candid Camera, where they would like catch unsuspecting people doing stuff. But I think it shows that we all want to fit in, right? We, we don't want to stick out. And yet I, I, I think this morning in our biblical text, this is exactly what the Christians that Peter was writing to were feeling. 
right? They were new believers in the Lord. They were new followers of Jesus. And they were sort of confused by the pushback that they were getting by the people around them. Right? They were excited about this new faith, and yet the people around there were not as enthusiastic about their following Jesus. And in fact, it got so bad that Peter wrote to them a letter, and in this letter, First Peter, he uses the word suffering 17 times. And he says, you're going to suffer, and he says it 17 times and talks about the different ways that he suffers. The whole reason that he writes this book is to teach followers of Jesus how to live in a fallen world that's often hostile to God. Peter's essentially saying, you're going to stick out. You're going to do things that are different than other people. You're going to have to conform to the follower, uh, to Jesus and not to the world, right? Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't like to hear that, right? We don't like to hear that. We like to hear the good parts, but here it is. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I'm going to talk in here first to two kinds of people. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus. I'm not going to assume that everyone who comes into church on Sunday morning is a follower of Jesus. If that's you this morning, I know how it sounds. Come to Jesus and you will suffer. Not the greatest sales pitch in the world, right? Come to Jesus and you will be singled out. You'll be singled out. You'll be the odd duckling. You'll be the one who's a little bit different. If that's you this morning, I want to say it's true. There is a Christian dilemma. And the Christian dilemma is that following Jesus will make life more difficult for you. Count on it. It's going to happen. And yet so often this catches Christians by surprise, especially American Christians, where we're used to sort of ease and comfort and and fitting in. It catches us by surprise. And there are times in our life where where things turn south and we go, Lord, I thought following you leads to blessing, right? It's the evildoers, it's people who sin. Those are the ones who get punished, but those who do good, good things happen to them, right? So we get surprised when bad things happen in your life. And yet a relationship with Jesus is going to bring tension between you and the people around you. It's going to happen. Tension in your family. Especially your extended family, right? Who, who don't share your same values in Jesus. Maybe your relationship with Jesus is going to bring tension between you and your coworkers as they do things that you don't want to participate in because you follow Jesus, or as they don't do things that you want to do because you love Jesus. And of course, for all of us, our relationship with Jesus is going to cause tension between us and the culture at large. Far from always making your life better, becoming and staying faithful as a Christian actually, at times, makes things feel worse. So Peter is saying in this whole book, and specifically in the passage that we're going to look at, he's going to say, guys, look, your faith in Jesus is a collision point between you and culture. You hear me? Your faith in Jesus is a collision point between you and culture. And the more you take your faith public, the more cultural pushback you're going to receive. Let me say that one more time. The more you take your faith public, the more cultural pushback you're going to receive in your life. And so what Peter is going to do throughout the whole book of 1 Peter, and specifically in this passage, is he lists some ways culture pushes back. 
So, way number one, he says that the rationality of your faith will be questioned. This is in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. He says, have a ready defense for what you believe because people are going to question you. You ever had that happen, right? Why do you believe that? Why would you believe that? Why do you do this? Why do you go to church on Sunday morning? Why don't you do this? Or why do you do this? And we receive questions from the people around us. And so the Bible says, have a ready defense for the hope that you believe. Number two, he says, the legitimacy of your faith will be mocked. Ever feel like that? You ever feel like the outsider in your peers or outsider, maybe sometimes even in America, as the things that we believe get pushed to irrelevance in the cultural conversation? Our passage says you will be insulted for the name of Christ. Number three, he says the steps of faith you take are going to be actively opposed. So what he's saying is the more you conform your life around Jesus, the more pushback you're going to get. You ever notice that? You ever notice how when you start trying to get your life right in relation to Jesus and clean some things up and get right and start obeying him, that your friends are not always the most enthusiastic people to those changes, right? They're like, well, why don't you do this? As much as I am a pastor encouraging you always to take your next step of faith, you have to recognize that every time you take a step toward Jesus, that you cause more pushback in your life to other forces in the world. That there are powerful forces, powerful industries, powerful people and things in this world that will always actively oppose you getting closer to Jesus. Count on it. To the couple who's trying to refrain from sex before marriage, count on pushback. To the teenager who's trying to get his life right and trying to, to watch his mouth and watch his language, expect pushback. Maybe for you as an adult, when you step out to share Jesus or reflect Jesus, expect pushback. In all these things, you're going to meet resistance. And that's what Peter's saying, to expect it. So if you're not a believer in here this morning, I just want to say I'm so glad that you are here. I'm excited that you are discovering what it looks like to follow Jesus. And part of what I want to do for you this morning is I want to convince you that, yes, stepping into the Jesus camp produces suffering in your life. But I also want to show you why it's worth it. And if you're a Christian in here this morning, I want to try to convince you that stepping out as a Christian is going to cause pushback and is going to cause maybe awkwardness with your friends and may even invite suffering in your life, but that it's worth it because it produces something good in your life. The good that you get out of the suffering and persecution that you get as a Christian is going to be worth it. And I hope to convince that for you this morning. So if you would, uh, let's dive down a little bit into our passage in verse 12. I'll read it one more time. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He says, do not be surprised. Why would he say that? Why would he say, do not be surprised? Because suffering often catches us by surprise, right? He wouldn't have to say that if we weren't often surprised by suffering. And there's so often when we sing amazing songs about God's love and God's forgiveness and God's blessing on our life, that when bad things happen, we're like, Lord, what happened? (laughs) 
Right? What happened, Lord? That, that's not the God that I thought I worshipped. I didn't think that you would let anything bad happen to me. But I want to say this morning that if you are surprised by bad things happening in your life, it may be built on a bad theology of suffering. I tell our summer schoolers, our, our midweek class where we're studying theology, I've told them before, and I'll tell you now, you are a theologian. Right? You're a theologian. Even if you're not a believer, not a Christian here this morning, you are a theologian because you have come to conclusions about God and about suffering that have led you to a certain beliefs in your life. They shape you. And I'll take it a step farther. You have a theology of suffering whether you know it or not. Maybe you think suffering is random and meaningless. Right? No good can come out of suffering. It's meaningless. I get a flat tire. That's just the way the world works. There's no rhyme or reason. Maybe for you, this is uh, what a lot of people in America believe. You may think that suffering is karma. Right? Suffering is bad karma. If I do good things, what? It's going to come around, right? If I do bad things, it's going to come around. And so Americans so often believe in this idea of karma, right? Bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. You may share this theology of suffering. And the last one, you may think suffering is always bad, that it has no meaning, that no good can come from it. So what I want you to do this morning, no matter where you stand on this spectrum of suffering, is I want you to at least acknowledge that your idea of suffering, your theology of suffering may be wrong. So what what I want to do this morning and my first point is I want us to allow God's love to shape your theology of suffering. Look at verse 12. What do you think? And this is going to be some audience participation. Look at verse 12. What do you think is the most important word in in this verse? Someone shout it out. We have God. What was this one? Beloved. I think it's beloved. And the reason I think it's beloved, because it sets the tone for everything that's going to follow. Beloved. We are God's beloved. And we have to allow God's love to shape our understanding of suffering. All suffering that you experience as a Christian, all persecution, all bad things that happen in your life happen within the context of God's covenantal love with you in which God says, you are mine and I am yours. Nothing happens outside of that. The most important response to suffering is developing a worldview that is shaped by God's love. Listen to what Timothy Keller says, a famous a pastor up in New York, he says, the only love that won't disappoint you is one that cannot change, that cannot be lost, that is not based on the ups and downs of life or how well you live. It is something that not even death can take away from you. God's love is the only thing like that. So before I tell you all the things that suffering can gain you in life, I have to convince you That no matter what happens, God's love is a constant in your life. Because if you don't hold on to that, then your understanding of God's love is going to rise or fall based off of your present circumstances. But the Bible says that God's love is constant. 
And if you come to the conclusion that because God is good and because God loves you, that he will never allow you to to undergo suffering or persecution in life, you're going to be sorely disappointed and sorely surprised. I heard this uh, joke the other day. I'm not a big joke person, but I thought it was pretty funny. It said there was a newspaper reporter who phoned a story into his editor. And uh, the story was about an empty truck that rolled down a hill and smashed into a home. And so the reporter called his editor and he says, hey, I think we should put this in the newspaper. And the editor responds to him. He's saying, you know, I don't think it's that big of a story. We shouldn't put it in there. And the reporter responds, I'm glad you're so good about this because guess what? It was your house, right? That was a pretty good one. Give me a round of applause on that one. That was a good joke. All right, so just expecting difficult times in your life is half the battle. If you have a theology of suffering in which God can only do good things in your life, then you're going to be disappointed and you're going to miss out on half of what the Christian life is about. I'm going to share a picture of this morning for one of my favorite Christian artists, Um, I love this picture right here. Um, This is a depiction of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. And if you'll notice behind him, you've got a thousand black arrows, right? And they're all coming at it. And Jesus is blocking all those arrows. And then you have the Christian who's been sliced by one of the arrows, but it's white. And for me, it, it reminds me that God, whatever he allows to come into our life, is for our good. The Bible says that God works for our good in all things. So whatever he does allow to strike us is something that he works out for our good. We have to believe that this morning. So I want us to look at verse 13 as we think about what we can do in the midst of suffering in our life. And I'll read it one more time. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter wants to take his case about suffering one step farther. He says, not only can you endure suffering, but you can rejoice in it. Right? Anyone can endure suffering, and everyone has to endure suffering. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you have suffering in your life. You have bad things that happen in your life. But Peter says, not only can you endure, but you can rejoice. Why does he say that? What can suffering do for you? We'll answer that question. But first, uh, I rediscovered something pretty amazing. I rediscovered libraries. Like, this is an amazing thing. I knew about this when I was a kid, but I rediscovered libraries. You can check out books for free. And I think that's just amazing that you can go to a library and just check it out for free. You don't have to buy books. But I recently went to the library near an apartment, and I, I, I got a book. And the book is called Mastery by, um, what's his first name? Robert Greene. Has anyone read this book before? Mastery by Robert Greene? No one's read this book before. Okay. I'm not sure I'd recommend it. But it had a good part in the book that I wanted to share with you guys. So what the book does is it examines the lives of great people like Leonardo da Vinci, Henry Ford, um, Picasso, uh, some of these other people. And it says, what is unique to these people that makes them masters of their craft, right? They're masters of their craft. So what made them into that? And it explores different traits. And in this book, it talked about this system back in the Middle Ages of the apprenticeship. 
And I thought this was really fascinating as I was reading this in the book. So in the Middle Ages, you had various masters, right? Maybe you were a master blacksmith or a master artist or a master painter or or whatever it was, a master artisan. You were a master at your craft. And oftentimes your uh, business would get so big that your family could not support helping you, right? So they had to find talented people to come around them to help them in their craft. But it wasn't worth it for them to just bring people on and have them leave in a few months, right? Even as employers today, they don't like you to do that. You know, when you hop on for like a few months and then you hop off, that looks bad on your resume. And the masters didn't want people like that. So they came up with this system called the apprentice system in which younger people would come into their shop, learn from them over the course of several years and learn everything they know and then exit out into the world as their own sort of master Uh, out of training. And so this is what Green says in his book. He says, in this system, young people from approximately ages 12 to 17 would enter work in a shop, signing a contract that would commit them for the term of seven years. Because few books of drawings exist or drawings existed at that time, apprentices would learn the trade by watching masters and imitating them as closely as possible. They learn through endless repetition and hands-on work with very little verbal instruction. And so he goes on and he goes on to say that they would work with these masters for many, many years and they would be trained in the craft. And I want you to take a guess, some more audience participation, about how many hours do you think they spent during this apprenticeship, if you had a guess? 5,000. Who else? 10,000. 10,000 hours. Have you heard that term before? If you've seen a TED Talk before, you've heard this idea that becoming a master at something requires 10,000 hours of focus. So if you want to play the piano or be good at a language, you have to spend 10,000 hours at it. This is where it came from. I never knew that. That's awesome. You learn stuff all the time. And yet this book got me thinking that we are apprentices to the master Jesus. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I'm an apprentice. I always debate whether or not I'm going to let you get away with that unenthusiastic. Turn to your other neighborhood. Uh, Neighbor, I'm an apprentice. All right. Thanks for um, condoling me there. So I want you to listen here to John, uh, to Jesus in John chapter 15. He says, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his what? Master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Was Jesus well acquainted with suffering? Yes. His entire lifetime is pretty much suffering. From when he was a kid and his parents had to take him from place to place to place, to the fact that he probably lost his earthly father pretty young, to the fact that he was constantly going against religious leaders in his adulthood, to the fact that he suffered on the cross, Jesus knows a lot about suffering. And Jesus knows that suffering in our life accomplishes a lot. And so I think you and I have to adopt this mindset of the apprentice. We have to recognize that if we're going to learn how to suffer well, we're probably not going to learn how to do it in a book. We're going to have to do it through experience, right? Because you can't just read about things in a book and expect to be a master at it. You have to experience it for yourself. 
Jesus wants us to know how to suffer well so that we can trust him better. And so we have to suffer uh, in experiences more than just reading about it. So that's number one. Number two, apprentices of old, like the apprentices of old, we must imitate Jesus as a master. And then number three, like the apprentices of old, we must practice the art of suffering well many times, often over and over and over again until it becomes second nature. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. And as you go through this process of going through hard times and going through seasons of difficulty, over time and throughout your lifetime, you begin to love the joy of what you get out of suffering more than the pain that comes with it. So let's briefly explore the apprenticeship of suffering, and I'll throw the first one up there. Number one is suffering purifies your faith. Look at verse 12. He says, suffering is like a fiery trial, right? Suffering is like a fiery trial, so it burns away all the impurities in your faith. Uh, One of my favorite uh, Timothy Keller quotes, I reference him a lot in this one. He says, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Amen? You don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And so God puts you in situations in which the thing that you were trusting in, the thing that you were relying so much on, he takes that away and says, trust me instead. Suffering is like a crisis point that draws up the insecurities and the impurities in your faith over time. And I love how uh, Sarah and I, one of the things that we try to do often uh, when we were dating and also in our marriage is we would try to get into different circumstances with each other. Right? We would try to get into different circumstances because when you're in unique circumstances that neither of you have been in before, it draws things to the surface, right? I think we learned that whenever we went to uh, Seattle a few months ago. We, we flew on a plane and we saw just how different we are. I like to get to the airport about two to three hours early before the flight. And uh, she's much more experienced. She was a flight attendant. So she says, we don't need to get there uh, that quickly, right? And so you draw out these things. I see I'm very stressed in situations in which time is an element. So I recognize that's an impurity uh, probably in my relationship with her and my relationship with God. And so these new situations in our life draw these things up to the surface. Number two, suffering traces Jesus's footsteps. Verse 13 says that you actually, when you suffer, you share in the sufferings of Jesus. If we're followers of Jesus, that means we follow him wherever he goes. And Jesus often walked into suffering. Peter says, if you follow Jesus into suffering, if you do that, you can be confident that you will also follow him into glory. Because Jesus says suffering is real, but he also says suffering is temporary for those who follow him. So we trace Jesus' footsteps in the apprenticeship of suffering. And number three, suffering identifies you with Jesus. Look at verse 14 in our passage, and I'll throw it up on the screen. It says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Look, let's get real. Christianity will always carry a stigma. Christianity will always uh, be looked down upon in culture. Even the word Christian 
comes straight out of the book of Acts. There were people who saw the early followers of Jesus and they gave them a name, Christian, which means little Christ. And I believe that that was in part a derogatory term. I think that he was saying, look at these wannabe Jesus followers, right? Look at these wannabe uh, followers of Jesus. So they were always identified with Jesus. Number two, Christianity will always carry a stigma. The word stigma literally means to be branded with an iron. So we always have the mark of Jesus on our life, in our speech. Our flavor is like Jesus. So don't think that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to go unnoticed in culture. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb. And Peter says to expect that, to rejoice in that, to share in Jesus' sufferings and say, hey, if it's good enough for my Savior, it's good enough for me. Identify with Jesus. Suffering identifies us with Jesus. And number four, suffering awakens the world to Jesus. Suffering has a way of jolting us out of our stupor, right? Far too often, I think we get used to the trivial things of life. And in suffering, it brings all the big questions of life roaring back to the forefront. Right? Life and death, heaven and hell, salvation and damnation. All these different things are brought out in suffering. And so I think suffering has a person of, a purpose in here. And if you're a follower, uh, not a follower of Jesus in here this morning, I think it does something for you as well. C.S. Lewis uh, famous, famously said this, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If you're still on the fence about following Jesus, recognize that suffering and pain in your life is a megaphone from God saying, look here, recognize that I'm in the midst of it. Let's look at our final verse here in verse 19. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So at the beginning we agreed that suffering cannot be understood apart from God's love for you. And then secondly, we saw that suffering is like an apprenticeship to being like Jesus, being like the master Jesus. But I'm going to take it one step farther because I believe the passage takes it one step farther. And I just want to say in advance, I know that some of you are going to hop off the train right here. You're going to hop off the train right here, and I think that's uh, okay if you do, but I want you to consider pressing on even beyond these things to the last truth in our passage. And that truth is that suffering on purpose advances the gospel. Suffering on purpose advances the gospel. Peter says that not only are we to endure suffering, but that we are to entrust our souls to our faithful creator while doing good. Uh, Watchman Nee was a Christian pastor back in uh, the, the early 20th century, and he was a Chinese pastor uh, in China before and during the communist revolution. And uh, he spent the last 20 years of his life uh, in prison. And uh, I got a book uh, one year, actually from Steve Gonzalez gave me that book, but I got a book that he wrote called The Character of God's Workmen. And in that book, he says that Christians must have a mind to suffer. And to have a mind to suffer is to recognize and to be ready at all times to step into suffering, if doing so would lead someone else to Jesus Christ. 
Oswald Chambers said this, To choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. So no healthy saint ever chooses suffering. I'm not saying that we run into suffering because we enjoy suffering. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying what he's saying. He says he chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. We've got to recognize that more often than not, the gospel advances into our relationships through some sort of discomfort, some sort of suffering on our part. Christian ease and Christian comfort rarely leads to gospel advancement. That's just the way that it is. That's what I've seen in the scriptures and what I see in real life. We must suffer if we're going to advance the gospel. So whether that suffering is something inconvenient, like taking time out of your day to have a conversation with something, someone, or whether that's on the extreme end of physical death, we must have a mind to suffer for Jesus. So I wonder this morning... To what extent are you and I willing to suffer? Are you willing to risk being inconvenienced for Jesus? Are you willing to risk discomfort for Jesus? Are you willing to risk awkwardness for Jesus? Are you willing to risk rejection for Jesus? Are you willing to risk ridicule for Jesus? Are you willing to risk slander for Jesus? Are you willing to risk exile from friendships or opportunities at work or in life because of Jesus? And yes, are you willing to risk physical harm for Jesus? The question this morning is, where is your line? So we draw to a close this morning. I wonder, which stop do you get off at? Right? For, for some of us, that stop is inconvenience. Right? We, we don't want to come out of a Christian at work because it's going to cause some sort of inconvenience, some sort of brand to be put on us. So we say, Jesus, that's the stop I get off on. I'll go with you up until that point, but when i got to do that, I'm hopping off the train. Maybe for some of us, um, where we hop off is rejection. Right? We don't want to be rejected by people or by a friend or by a stranger. We, we don't like it. We don't like the feelings. So we say, Jesus, this is where I'm hopping off. I'll follow you up until that point, but as soon as I have to do that, I'm going to hop off. I want to challenge you to do something this week because I think every good sermon has a challenge. And I'll give you two options. And uh, please hold me to it as well. Um, Come find me next week and say, say, Pastor James, did you do what you challenged us to do? And the first option is this. I want you to engage in a spiritual conversation with someone that you know does not follow Jesus. Maybe you could talk to them about the sermon, about what you learned about suffering. You've got an encouraging word for them about suffering. But I hope and I challenge you to say, Lord, this is not where I'm hopping off. But I'm going to go on with you to the end. So that's option one. And then option two is I want uh, everyone to turn around and look at this back table that we have. I can see you got to turn around. I see. Invitation station. This is a a, a new uh, thing that we brought out to make it easier uh, for each of us to invite people to church. You know, so you say, James, I just don't feel like I'm ready to have a spiritual conversation, to share the gospel. And that may be okay. 
But I hope at the very least you will join us in inviting people into this spiritual conversation and what happens in this place. On that table, you'll find invite cards. You'll find invite cards to community groups. You'll find invite cards to the Sunday service. And it's so easy to take one of those and say, hey, I just want to invite you to church. It really blesses me, and I'd love for you to be blessed as well. I hope that that's something that you will go on with Jesus on the train. The Bible calls us to serve God no matter the personal cost. And before we close, I just want to share the reason for that. The reason that God calls us to cross every line for him is, of course, because Jesus loved us enough to cross every line. Ever think about that? Ever think about how Jesus valued you more than he valued not suffering? Jesus valued you more than he valued not going into the cross. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, I encourage you to step across that line because Jesus was willing to do it for you and he promises in the Christian life that whether or not you suffer or not, he's there with you. He's always one step ahead. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I hope you see suffering not as something to be escaped, but as something to rejoice in the midst of. We don't rejoice because of suffering. We rejoice in the midst of suffering. I'll end with this uh, quote that I really enjoyed before we pray. It comes actually from uh, The Return of the King, which is the third book in the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. And uh, in in this scene, Aragorn, uh, who's sort of the kingly figure in the last book, is standing beside the bedside of Mary, who's one of the the hobbits, and he had fallen ill through some nefarious means, and his friend, Pippin, was right next to him, and he's at his side, and he's nervous, and he's afraid, and, and Aragorn seeks to sort of comfort him, and he says these words. He says, his grief he will not forget, but it will not darken his heart. It will teach him wisdom. There's a wisdom that we get from suffering that can only come from suffering. God knows that, and God gives us the strength to endure in the midst of it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you that you do not leave us unaware of what's going to happen in our life. Lord, I know for a fact that there are people in this room who are suffering, lost of a loved one, Rejection from friends, being fired from their job, maybe just struggling in the day-to-day world, making ends meet. And Lord, I hope that you would press upon them in this moment that you see that. You see that. There's no one in the entire world who understands suffering like you understand it, Jesus. So we pray that you'd comfort us in this place that as we come forward in a time of receiving the Lord's Supper, that it might be an act of worship and submission, saying, God, I don't got it all figured out, but I trust you in it. And lastly, Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness to step forward in faith this week, to identify with Jesus no matter the cultural repercussions. Or repercussions. We love you, Lord. Be with us in this place. It's in the name of Jesus that we